so if you would open your Bibles this morning to Romans chapter 3. It seems like a long time since we've been in Romans. It seems like uh, uh, quite a few weeks since we've been there. And next week, we're going to focus on Father's Day, and so we won't be in, in Romans next week either. And then the next week, we're going to finish this section down through verses uh, 20 uh, of Romans. And then, I'm gonna ha- then there's going to be a couple Sundays where there'll be also other people filling in the pulpit for me. And so, again, we're going to have a long break uh, in Romans. And so we're trying to mix things up just a bit. But nonetheless, uh, Romans chapter 3, verses 1 to 8. And so if you do not have your Bible with you this morning, I do wish you would bring them uh, so you can see where these words are coming from. But if you do not have one with you this morning, you can open the Pew Bible to page 940, and you can follow along there. And God's inerrant and inspired and sufficient word reads, Then what advantage does the Jew have? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? Great in every respect. First, that they were entrusted with the actual words of God. What then if some did not believe? Their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? Far from it. Rather, God must prove to be true though every person be found a liar as it is written, so that you are justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? I am speaking from a human viewpoint. Far from it. For otherwise, how will God judge the world? But if through my lie the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, just as we are slanderously reported and some claim that we say, let's do evil that good may come from it. Their condemnation is deserved. Father, I would ask a blessing upon the reading of your word. And now, Lord, as we spend a few moments on a troubling, on a difficult passage to get our minds wrapped around, Lord, I do pray that your spirit would illuminate this text for us so that we can understand it. And through understanding, we know how to apply it to our life, not just for today, but for the upcoming week or however we may find it applicable. Father, we just pray that uh, we know that all Scripture is sufficient, that all Scripture is given to us on purpose and for a purpose for our edification. We know that there's, there's much we don't know, but what you have given us is sufficient to lead a faithful life as followers of yours. And so I pray, Lord, uh, that you would bless this next half hour of our time here together, studying your word together. I pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. I have simply titled this message this morning, The Credibility of God. The credibility of God. And it, it may be a little bit of a, a unique title, but it's the perspective I'm taking on these few verses. And I suppose that uh, from time to time, uh, we have had our credibility questioned. I suppose there's time, there's a time that maybe someone challenged our thinking or challenged what we were saying or what we were thinking or how we were acting. And if we're honest, we have probably also challenged the credibility of others around us also, or maybe those out in the digital world, and where we have uh, discredited them or credited them in a way. And, and credibility is something that we all want, that we all give, and that each and every one of us functions under some sort of, um, some sort of model, if you will, or some sort of, uh, what shall we say, some, in some way that somewhat dictates our life, 
maybe to, to a negative in the fact that we're so worried about the view of others and how they see our life. And that is something to be concerned with. We do want credibility. Uh, but, but, you know, we're, we're comfortable with all that. But maybe we're not as, uh, maybe we do not feel as safe admitting that we too at times may question the credibility of God. Right? I mean, are we even allowed to say that in church? Can we say such a thing? But yet if we're honest, every one of us, maybe from time to time, maybe not verbally, and maybe we quickly force it out of our minds, but we question the credibility of God. We're not alone in this area. Job questioned God's credibility. He said, why do the wicked still live and grow old and also become very powerful? The psalmist questioned the credibility of God when the psalmist wrote, for I envied the proud when I saw them prosper despite their wickedness. I keep my heart pure for nothing? Did I keep myself innocent for, for no reason? And Jeremiah questioned the credibility of God when he wrote, Yahweh, you always give me justice when I bring a case before you. So let me bring you this complaint. Now there's honesty. Why are the wicked so prosperous? Why are the evil people so happy? You have planted them. They have taken root and prospered. Your name is on their lips. But you are far from their hearts. Lip service. Why do the good things happen? It's the question of theodicy, right? Why do good things happen to bad people? Or we can flip it around and say, why do bad things happen to good people? It's a question that we cannot answer completely and fully into our satisfaction. And it is something that we wrestle with. And maybe you're saying, yeah, I hear you, but I don't see how that's questioning the credibility of God. Well, I think it is. I think it is. And we have that here this morning in these eight verses. Because in these eight verses, it's almost a question and answer time that Paul is having with what I see is, a, uh, is with somebody, an imaginary friend, if you will. I don't think that he has somebody standing before him asking him these questions, but it's a series of question and answers. In verses 1, 3, uh, uh, 5, 7 are questions. And then the even verses are the answers that Paul gives us. And they're a bit troubling. I mean, what to do with them, I don't know. I turned to turned to my many commentaries, and I was, I was somewhat surprised by how many of them said that this section of verses can be some of the most difficult to understand in all the biblical text. Well, I, I mean, it's hard, yes, and it's troubling, but it gave me pause, and it gave me realize that, that these are questions that maybe we should look at ourselves, and you have my outline there for you in the bulletin that you can follow along, and well, I don't see how far we'll get here this morning, but nonetheless, we're going to finish it up. Uh, but we may skip some of it. So you have it there in front of you that you can have it for your own uh, future study. And so we're going to look at each and every one of these, and I'm just going to call them objections. So we're going to have the first, second, third, and fourth objection, and then some answers to that. And that's how I'm going to break up this passage here this morning. 
And the first objection that I've titled, and I'm titling this objection, the privileged position of the Jews, or the privileged position of Christian people, or the privileged position of Jesus' followers, however you want to label that. And we see that in verses 1 and 2. We see it in verses 1. Let's start with verse 1, then. Well, we must stop right there, because then is pointing to what came before it. And what came before it is obviously in verse two or chapter 2 in the last two verses that we covered two weeks ago. But it may do well for me to read them for you again this morning because this is the transition that Paul is now making. And then next week or, or, or two weeks from now, we'll look at the summation of these few chapters that we've been going over. And so Paul says this, for he is not a Jew, verse, uh, chapter 12 verse, or chapter 2, verse 28, for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from people, but from God. Then what, Paul says? Because now we can hear the argument. You mean my ethnicity, my faith practice, those things that I found so, find so important in my faith journey. You mean it all means nothing, Paul? You mean all the way that I've been taught from little, I've gone to children's church back there where, where Allison is doing such a great job catechizing your kids, teaching them about the scriptures, teaching them about God. You mean it means nothing? It's all about just what's in my heart, nothing about exterior or, or outwardly appearance or the things that I do? Well, Paul says not entirely. And now he's going to get into this argument, though. Or now he's going to get into this uh, this. this um, <clears throat> this, this um, make-believe, if you will, or this uh, uh, discussion that he's going to have with this objector. And he says, so what then, the objector says, what advantage is there or does the Jew have? He's questioning their ethnicity. Or what is the benefit of, of circumcision? And he's questioning here, he's questioning their religion. He's questioning Judaism. He's questioning, as we would say for us, he's questioning Christianity. And so what is the advantage of being a Jew? Does anything matter? Much importance was put on their ethnicity, and rightly so, because as these young men and women grew up within the synagogue, grew up within the churches, they were catechized using the Old Covenant, using what we call the Old Testament. For them, it certainly wasn't the Old Testament. And I just want to cover briefly there a few to set the stage for why they may have this idea and why Paul may be saying, I know what you're thinking. Let me challenge what you're thinking or let me respond to what you're thinking. In Genesis chapter 22, we have the story there of where Abraham took Isaac up to the mountain, right? And he was there going to sacrifice God or sacrifice Isaac before God. And because Abraham was faithful to Yahweh, faithful to God, and he, was not, and he was not going to spare his son because God asked him to sacrifice. God said, therefore, indeed, I will greatly bless you. I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore. And in your seed, all the nations, all the nations, we should circle that. Because already we see in Genesis that God's purpose and plan was not for the Jewish folks alone. But all nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. This is something they took with them. Exodus chapter 32. 
where, Abraham, where, where Moses came down from the mountain, where he received the very law of God, where he f- received the Ten Commandments, and he found them worshiping the golden calf. And God said, that's it. I'm going to wipe them out. <clears throat> and Moses, I'm going to start over with you. And Moses says, no, 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 God, you can't do that. Your servants to whom you swore by yourself. God, you promised. God, you swore yourself to these people that you have chosen them on purpose and for a purpose. If you go back on your word now, God, you can't do that. You will lose credibility. You said that you would multiply your descendants of all the stars of the heavens. And if we were going to continue to read, it says that God relented and spared his people. Deuteronomy chapter 7, we have the same thing where, where Yahweh did not make you his beloved or choose you because you were greater. You're not all that great. But God chose you for that very reason because you're not all that great. So don't think God chose you because you're special. God chose you just out of the kindness of his heart. But because Yahweh loved you, that's why. And so the people are thinking, now wait a minute. Right from Genesis, because of the faithfulness of Abraham, because of Moses going to bat on behalf of us because we failed, and because right here, because Deuteronomy tells us that God loves us. And now, Paul, you're saying none of it matters? It just doesn't matter at all? And not only that, Paul doesn't, in essence, dismiss their ethnicity, but Paul dismisses Judaism. Some say, well, it's not necessarily Judaism, some commentators, but it's really the rite of passage, if you will. It's the mark that they received, that they said, you are a people, a person, you are a man of God. And so you're saying none of that means anything? Do you know what I want? Do you mean none of that means anything? Paul says, in essence, no, it doesn't mean anything at all. You know, it's like, It's like for us, too, right? What, 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 what do we make sense of this? How do we make sense of this? How, how, how do we apply this to us? Well, you may be thinking here this morning that, well, I grew up in a Christian home. I've had Christian parents. I've gone to Bible school. In fact, I'm such a good Christian. By the way, I'm Mennonite. But I'm such a good Christian that I went to Sunday morning service I went to Sunday night service, and I went to Wednesday night service. That's how good I am. And I was such a good boy that I used to have to come home early from framing houses so that I could go to Bible study, Bible school, I guess we called it, VBS, right? All the, you mean none of that matters anything? I went to a Christian school. I went to a Christian church. I've done all these things. You mean none of it matters at all? I was baptized. That's our mark of being followers of Christ in the New Testament. Baptism is the right that says we belong to people of God. I've been baptized as a young man. You mean that counts for nothing? None of that matters? In fact, I've gone through all that. I got the certificates. I got the stars. I got the T-shirt that says I was baptized. I have it all. You know, I think many of us, may find ourselves in the same place as these people that Paul is discussing 
here in Romans chapter 3, that we too look at the things that we do, how we were raised, how we were brought up. And I know maybe a third of us are Mennonite this morning or cradle Mennonites, if you will. But I always grew up with an understanding that as a Mennonite, I was a special person. I don't know where I got that from. That's just what I always thought. Some of you are chuckling because you know what I'm saying. Nobody ever, did Ruthann, did anybody ever tell you that? <laughs> sure. You know, but we had some of these ideas, right? And I can pick on Monday if you're Baptist or Presbyterian or, or non-denominational this morning. You probably had similar ideas as you went to church Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. We have these ideas that because of who we are and what we've done and how we function, that that works to our advantage. And Paul says here, it doesn't matter. But it does. It doesn't matter if that's what you hinge your salvation on. None of that matters. What does matter, Paul said, they're asking. And here we see the question being answered in verse 2, where Paul says, much or great in every way. First, he never gets to second. I guess he finds the first point so important. He never gets to the second point. Verse 2, great in every respect. First, that they were entrusted with the actual words of God. And Paul stops right there. You are special. Paul is telling this person who is objecting to Paul's argument here. You are special because you received, your translation may say, oracles of God. You received the very words of God, oracles. To translate that over from the original languages, it is, it is speaking. It, it is that God, as you remember, as Moses went up on the mountain, God spoke these words to Moses. Moses, by the inspiration of the Spirit, recorded them for us. You received them. God gave them to you. You were entrusted with them. You were, to be, you were the caretaker of them. You were to pass them along to your children. You were to pass them along later on in their faith journey to the lands with it, with, where God has placed you. You're supposed to pass it along to the peoples of the land. You're supposed to be faithful with what God has given you. First and foremost, Paul says, that is to your great advantage. In fact, we see that in uh, Acts chapter 7. Um, Boy, this time goes along quickly. In Acts chapter 7, where Stephen is drugged before the anhedron, drugged before the Supreme Court, drugged before the court. And he says, Stephen, what are you doing out there preaching stuff that we don't agree with that's going against what you were taught as a good Jewish boy? And in verse 37, he says this. And he says, this Moses... And he goes through the whole Heilsgeschichte. He goes through the whole salvation history, the salvation story of the people. And he gets to Moses and he says, This Moses, whom they disowned, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? Is the one God sent to be both ruler and deliverer. And with the help of angel who, who appeared before him in that thorn bush. And they understood the Exodus story. And they understood what God did for them, bringing them out of Egypt. And then Stephen continues in verse 38. This is the one who was in the assembly in the wilderness together with the angel who spoke to him at length at Mount Sinai and who was with our fathers. And he received the living words. He received the oracles passed on to him. And you have them. You're the caretaker of them, and because how you read them, because how you see them, and because how you interpret them is why you've drugged me before you this morning. That was the challenge that Stephen gave to these people, and he got killed for it. 
because he was thinking outside the box or he was seeing what God was doing in and among the people. In fact, we have it in Amos chapter 8, verse 11, where Amos says this, Behold, days are coming when, when I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine of wheat, not a, fan of, a famine of water. You're going to have the food, you're going to have the water, but there's going to come a famine on the land where you will no longer hear from me. You will no longer have the words of God. I'm going to take them from you because you have not been faithful stewards of what God has entrusted you with. Now that should preach to us if you want to say that this morning. As some say, that'll preach. Right? What do we do? I don't know if you have your Bible with you this morning. I mean, there are Bible nerds like me who has a whole collection of Bibles uh, that my wife laments about, but uh, nonetheless, they're God's word. I can't sell them. Um, but, you know, how many Bibles do we have in our house? Look, you can pull your phone right out of your pocket, which is my clock, by the way. You can pull your phone out of your pocket. You know how many books I have on my phone? You know how many different Bible translations I have on my phone? You know how many Bible, it's not even a phone, it's a little pocket computer, right? We have it everywhere before us. We have this huge advantage as Christian people living in the United States, living in the Western world, that we have the Bible available to us in all kinds of translations and some translations that you shouldn't even be reading. Passion, don't read that. The message is a great paraphrase, but it's not where we get our doctrine from. We have the Bible before us, so many, in fact, that it could become a hindrance for us. But nonetheless... Read your Bibles, God says. There they are. You've been entrusted to them. What will we do with what we haven't given? In fact, if I could get really pointed this morning, I wonder, what if we were faced with a choice? I'll pick on everyone, but maybe not everyone. But, but what if we were given a choice this morning? Give up your Bible or your gun? What are you going to give up? What if you had a choice this morning? Give up your Bible or give up your right to choose? Hmm? What are you going to do? These are the things that we are faced with this morning. And I'm not saying any of this to make us feel guilty or any of that because I'm hoping that you would all, and I, I guarantee you because you're here under Holly Grove this morning, I know you would choose your Bible. Guaranteed. Full confidence of that. But these are the decisions that we face as Western Christians. These are what we are going to be held accountable for what we have before each and every of us. And this is what Paul is telling to those who are the objectors of what he is saying. You all, first and foremost, the greatest advantage is not your ethnicity. It's not your rite of passage. It's not your marks. It's not any of that stuff. In fact, Paul says later, he says, I just wish if you're going to go ahead and take the marks, just do it, the whole thing. Just go ahead. Galatians 5.12 or something. Um, just, just, if you're all in, be all in. But you, what's important for you, your advantage is that you have been given the word of God. And you know what this morning? It's sufficient. It's complete. There are no new revelations. God gave us 66 books, and it is enough. Thus says the Lord, if you want to hear thus says the Lord, read your Bible. If you want to hear God speak audibly, read your Bible out loud. <laughs> right? 
Many think in churches that we need to go soft on our Bible teaching, on our preaching. I was uh, flipping through some of my news feeds. Usually I just read the headline, but this one caught me that I actually read the article. And uh, you might have seen it too, where Joel Osteen's church, well, I'm not sure we call it a church, but Joel Osteen's gathering, um, where there was abortion, free choice, or, or pro-death folks that came there to protest this whole Supreme Court thing that you're all aware of, right? And I was just reminded, I mean, here's a guy. Here, here is a guy who preaches a soft gospel at best. And I'm not even sure we can call it that. A soft gospel at best. Let's leave it there. And yet he had protesters show up. I know he's got a big stage. He's got a big platform. And if somebody came here and done that this morning, the national media would not pick up on it. So I understand some of that. But often we think as Christian people, we need to go soft. No, no, folks. We need to double down. We need to stand upon the word of God and let the word of God speak. Spurgeon, I think, Spurgeon gets credited for all quotes. And so I think it was Spurgeon who says, who was asked, how do you defend the lion? Spurgeon said, you don't defend the lion. You just let it loose. Something like that. We don't defend the Bible. We don't have to defend the Bible. We let it loose. We don't shy from it. We don't back off. They miss the Messiah. They miss Jesus the Christ. The Christ is not his middle name. Jesus the Messiah. Because they did not read their Bibles. Oh, they read them. They read them. But they completely missed. Why? Because it challenged their worldview. In 2 Timothy 2.15, Paul tells Timothy, be diligent to present yourself approved, to be not, no need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. We have a great responsibility. I have a great responsibility. Sunday school teacher, Bible teacher, uh, uh, you have a great responsibility. Mom and dad, grandparents, we have a great responsibility to handle the word of God accurately as we pass it along to our children to our grandchildren, to our great-grandchildren. There are so many challenging teachers in God's Word, but we have been entrusted with the actual words of God. We have been given a responsibility, and it also is a huge blessing. There are people around the world who do not have a single copy, who have never even heard or read or seen such a thing as called the Bible. And yet we have. We have it so readily available. Let's be responsible with it. Well, moving on to the second objection, and I can tell now I'm not going to get finished here, so you have your notes there for you to, to study further on your own time. But we have the second objection, and it's really questioning the power of God's faithfulness. You see it in verse 3 and 4. In verse 3 and 4, uh, we're, we're, they're questioning God's faithfulness here. It says, what then if some did not believe? What if some were not faithful? Their unfaithfulness, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? May it never be. 
Titus 1-2 tells us that even if the whole world is lying, God cannot lie. And I think this applies for us here today too in a way that we can take some meaningful application from it. If you watch the religious side of the news as much as I do, then your heart is broken many times as you see the devastation that pastors, that church leaders, that those that God has entrusted with his word and with his people, how they do such horrible and terrific and horrific things and how they manipulate people, how they abuse people. You read it constantly way too often. I don't even like to read it anymore. What do we do when the person that we look up to for our faith And the person we look to for teaching us and explaining and opening up the Bible to us, what do we do when that person falls from grace, if you will? What do we do when that person completely blows up their life? What does that do for your faith? What does that do for you? Do you say, well, I'm out. I'm done. (laughs) If that person cannot stay true, then I certainly can't stay true. If that person falls, then it can't be any true. What we're doing is we're questioning the power of God. We don't look to men or women. We must look to God. And even if every single person falls away, Paul is right here. God will not and cannot. He says, in, he quotes Psalm 51.4, which is really interesting because if you're familiar with Psalm 51.4, it's David's lament of repentance. After, not only did he just steal another man's wife, and then because he got his other man's wife pregnant, he says, well, i got to fix this problem. Oh, i got a great idea. I'll just kill him. <laughs> I mean, this is David. So he kills Uriah. He's been challenged, and then he comes back, and he repents. And this is the psalm that he reads of repentance. And David says this. He says in Psalm 51.4, against you, God, not Uriah, not Bathsheba, not all the people that I was king over, He says, against you and you only have I sinned. Against you and you only have I sinned. Listen, everything's about God. Everything's about God, including how we respond or how we respond to others when they disappoint us. And David says this, and Paul is now quoting David right. He says, so that you are justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. What may not seem fair to us, David and Paul are saying, is fair and right and just with God because of who God is. You see, lack of faith does not affect the faithfulness of God. God is not dependent upon our faith or lack thereof. Rather, we are dependent upon the faithfulness of God. Our faithfulness is dependent upon the faithfulness of God. Philippians 1.6, For I am confident in this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to the completion the day of Jesus Christ. What God starts, right? What God starts. Did you get what God starts? He finishes. Not what you start. What God starts, God finishes. Third objection is questioning the position of God to judge. And we see it here so often also in these next few verses. Where it says, but if our unrighteousness, now if So it's a conditional, it's a hypothetical. Paul is saying, if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, if the way that we behave, if the way that we run our life, 
if the way that we judge others, if the way that we find ourselves working within the world, if that's what other people judge us on, on how God is, oh, wait a minute, they do that, don't they? It's exactly what they do. You hear this saying sometimes, you may be the only Bible that some people read. Well, rather than try to live up to the Bible, though you should, it may be better advice just to give them a Bible. But that's what, that's what Paul is saying. Just because I, I am the pastor and yet I fail, you all know that. I've been here for nine years. You all know that. How many failings I have. And you don't judge God's faithfulness by the way or righteousness by the way I act. I hope not. That's what Paul is saying here. If our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts right, wrath, he, 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 he's unrighteous. No. He's saying he's not at all. Not at all is what Paul is saying here. Position of God is to judge. God is our creator. You have it there in your outline. God is our creator. God is impartial. God is omniscient. God is merciful. This is why God is the only righteous judge. And lastly, I'll, I'll wrap it up here pretty quickly, but is, is this fourth objection. And I really want to get to this one. It's the fourth objection, and it's the purpose for our obedience. And this is, this is the challenge that the objector is now having with Paul. Well, what is the point of obedience? Why should it even matter? If you're just being deterministic in your way of thinking, why does it even matter how I live my life? The story has often been told of the jeweler, right? If you go and shop diamonds for your wife, um, and as you do that, the jeweler puts on the, on the jewelry case what? What does he put down first? A black velvet cloth. Why? So that diamond just pops against that black, right? That's us. That's God. That's how God pops. And so it, it, why should we not then help the diamonds? It's brilliant. come out by just sinning. This is the argument that now the objector, objector is having here for Paul. Romans 6.1, are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? Absolutely not. Paul says, may it never be. There's also an idea and a teaching around and among us, uh, not here, hopefully not, of course not, and, and that is this idea of, our, our, of, um, of antinomianism. Antinomianism would be against law. That law doesn't matter. What we do doesn't matter. We can do whatever we want because we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Absolutely, and amen. But how we act and function does matter. But they're, they're questioning, Paul, why does it even matter? You say it right here. If none of these things matter, it doesn't matter my ethnicity. It doesn't matter all the, all the rituals that I've gone through. None of that matters. Then I can just live however I want. Paul doesn't even answer. He just says, you know what? I know that's, we're, we're, we're accused of that. Paul says, slanderously, we've been reported that that's what we teach. That's what we say. That's what we are. But that's untrue. I'm not even going to respond to that. Just let that person be condemned. That's harsh. So Paul how he wraps it all up. Let that person be condemned. How we function and how we do, how we act does matter. First John 2. By this we know that we have come to know him. How? What? If we keep his commandments. And the one who says that I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments, he is a liar and the truth is not in him. Listen, we often say by the fruit we know the person. And, and what, do we, what, do you, what do we mean when we say that? By the fruit, we know the person, right? Well, that person uh, gives 
offerings on Sunday morning. They come to church on Sunday morning. They help the little old lady across the street. They, they come from Puerto Rico all the way to Crisfield, Maryland, a, a fantastic place to work. We go to Puerto Rico to work. All these, this is fruit of who we are. No, no, no. No, an atheist can do all that. When the Bible talks about knowing a person's fruit, the Bible is talking about my repentance and my obedience. If you want to know if I'm a man of God, if you want to be a man, a woman of God, it must include repentance and obedience. That is how we know the fruit of a person. Not by, not by the humanistic actions that they may do. It is by how they respond when they see the blackness of their sin against the gospel of Christ. God is credible. He sent his son in the flesh to show us what faithfulness looks like. The wrath of God that we deserved was nailed to the cross. Our righteousness was guaranteed by Jesus' defeat, death, coming in the flesh, defeating death, defeating evil, and rising from the grave three days later. That is why God, that is why Jesus is credible. Yes, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And let's tack on the other two as revealed in Scripture alone for the glory of God alone. Absolutely, we believe in the doctrines of grace. We are saved, and God is credible for that reason. But no pluses are added to that. It's not by grace plus, by faith plus, by Scripture plus. No, it's alone. Grace alone and Christ alone for the glory of God alone. Well, we are privileged. We actually have the very words of God. God is righteous and true. He will right every wrong. Do you hear that? He will right every wrong. We rely on God's faithfulness, not our faithfulness. Jesus is credible. Why? It's a simple little children's song, right? Because the Bible tells me so. Father, I pray this morning as we take a difficult passage and try to put some meaning to it. I pray, Lord, that we don't become Pharisaic in our own right, in our own way, by saying, ah, now I understand, now I got it, file it away. No, Lord, that's pointless, and that will be a total waste of our time. Lord, help us to be able to apply it. How do we live this out? How do we live out the hard teachings along with the great teachings, the ones we like to gravitate towards? How do we live it out? How are we faithful followers of yours? I pray, Lord, that we'll never stop asking that question and that you will continue to show us grace and mercy and love as we struggle along through this life. Father, we love you. We want to give all things to you. We thank you for what you have done on our behalf. And I pray, Lord, that you would continue to watch over us and to bless us as we continue to do the work that you have given us to do. I pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen.